Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What does Jesus's mission look like here? What's his mission here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What is Jesus's mission here? How do I know what Jesus's mission is? We are in the New Testament book of Acts. So if you got your Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 19. And as you do that, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to dive in and keep working our way through the book of Acts. Let me pray. Uh, Father, thank you for Jesus. And Jesus, thank you that, uh, that you do understand who we are, that you put on flesh, you became like us so that we could become like you. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd help me as I teach your word today. And then help us all to understand the things you've written and know how to apply them to our own lives, that we might be more like Christ. So uh, Lord, we trust you today. We ask you to do your work and uh, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you got your Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 19. And as you're turning there, I want to just kind of remind you where we're at in the book of Acts. You know, we've, uh, the gospels tell the story of Jesus' life and ministry, those first 30, 35 years. The book of Acts tells the next 30 or 35 years after Jesus' ascension and how Jesus' work continued through the early church. And Acts chapter one, verse eight, you heard that verse, you know, as I was coming up this morning, it really outlines everything that happens in this book. Uh, Jesus tells his disciples uh, to wait in Jerusalem for him until the power of the Holy Spirit comes on them. And when the Spirit comes, they will be his witnesses, starting off right where they are in Jerusalem. And from there, uh, the gospel is going to spread out uh, to Judea. And from Judea, the surrounding area, it's going to go even further to Samaria. And it's just going to keep growing and growing until ultimately it, it's going to reach the ends of the earth. Well, we're in Acts chapter 19, and, and for a while now, we've been in the section of Acts where the gospel is reaching out to the ends of the earth. And so, uh, in fact, Paul, the Apostle Paul, makes a handful of trips in the book of Acts where he's going out planting churches and sharing the gospel, bringing the gospel to these remote places uh, farther and farther away from Jerusalem. And uh, we started last Sunday his third journey where he leaves Antioch and he makes his way, this is modern day Turkey, makes his way to Ephesus on the coast of, uh, western coast of modern day Turkey. And for the next uh, few weeks while we're in Acts, we're gonna be camping out looking at Paul's ministry here in Ephesus. And so that's where we are today, uh, Acts chapter 19. And one of the things I want you to see this morning is God's power at work. I believe you're going to see God's power at work. So if you got your Bible, uh, look at Acts chapter 19, and we're going, to, uh, we're going to be in verse 11 on today, but I'm going to back up a little bit. We're going to start in verse 8. So Paul's in Ephesus, and while he's there, he enters the synagogue. 
And for three months in the synagogue, he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. You know, um, this was Paul's strategy. He would go to these big major cities, and Ephesus was a major city in the Roman Empire, and he would go into the synagogue and he would start with those who were uh, believers in the Old Testament, who were Jewish people, and he would explain to them that all of that points to Jesus and encourage people to believe on Christ. And then the gospel would trickle out from these big cities out to the more rural areas and around the Roman Empire. So that's what he's doing here, again, in, in Ephesus. Well, he teaches there for a number of months, and some became stubborn, and they continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, the way meaning uh, following Jesus, Christianity. And so he withdrew from them, and he, he took the disciples, those who believed the truth about Jesus, with him. And he started reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Now, we don't know who this Tyrannus guy is or why he's got a lecture hall. There's been inscriptions found in Ephesus in archaeology of his name, so we know uh, this isn't just something made up. But it's not clear exactly where it was or what happened, but it's some type of lecture hall. And likely what's going on here is uh, in that day, what would happen? The work day, you'd work about three hours in the morning till about 11 o'clock, three or four hours. You'd take a break in the heat of the day until about four o'clock, and then you'd go back to work until about nine or 9.30 in the evening. And so in that middle time of the day, from 11 to four, kind of that extended lunch break siesta, Paul, it appears, rented out this hall, this lecture hall of Tyrannus, and he started teaching the gospel there. And it was a pretty good strategy because all these people were just, that was their time off, and if they're in the city, they got nothing else to do, might as well go listen to this guy talk. And so Paul starts teaching, and he does this uh, for a number of years. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia, that area around Ephesus, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That was Paul's strategy, to teach them the gospel. Well, this continued for two years, as we said, and we read in verse 11 that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment, but you know, the only other people this is said of in Scripture is the Apostle Peter, when his shadow uh, was cast on someone and they were healed, and on Jesus, people you know, touching his robe and they were healed. But we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment, what's going on there. Because it's tempting to think when we see that, that, oh, man, Paul must have been been the man and like something special about Paul that isn't true of us. But the reality is it's, it's not about Paul. And it's not about you and me. It's not Paul and it's not us. In fact, look back again at verse 11, that verse right before. Uh, who is doing the miracles as you read that? God was, right? I mean, that's what it says. God was doing extraordinary miracles. Not Paul, not us, not anyone, but God. See, um, listen, anyone who purports to be able to do miraculous signs and wonders on their own, I'll just give you a tip, pro tip, that's a big red flag. Like somebody starts saying, I can do all this stuff, big red flag. Anyone um, who's in ministry or serving 
who tries to make it all about them. Big red flag, because it's not about them. It wasn't about Paul, and it's not about us. Whenever you feel like you're a big deal, and whenever I feel like I'm a big deal, big red flag, it's not about us. It's all about Jesus. In fact, um, the good things we have come from God, not from us. That's what Jesus' little brother James said, every good and perfect gift comes from above. So we should have the heart of the psalmist. I love this psalm, Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Don't make a big deal of us, make a big deal of Jesus. It's his glory, it's his faithfulness, it's his love. It's all about Jesus. Not you, certainly not me. You know, in the Old Testament, uh, there was a time where God's people were disobedient to him, and so he allowed them to be conquered by a foreign land because they just kept on going in their disobedience. And because he loved them, he wanted to discipline them and cause them to turn back. And so the Babylonians come in, uh, which would be modern-day Iraq. They come in, conquer Jerusalem, and they take all of God's people back in exile to that land. And in the process of conquering Jerusalem, they destroy the temple, Solomon's temple, which was beautiful and magnificent. Well, fast forward 70 years, and God was starting to bring his people back after this time of discipline. He's bringing them back to their land in Jerusalem. And in, in, the, in that time, what he did is he tasked a guy by the name of Zerubbabel with rebuilding the temple. Now, by the way, uh, any of you, if, you're, uh, if you know of somebody who's pregnant or you're thinking about having more kids, I'll just commend to you the name Zerubbabel. Just because I want to be able to say it every Sunday, Zerubbabel. It'd be a lot of fun, right? Uh, but Zerubbabel, do you know, he was a descendant of David. David was his great, 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 add on a few more granddaddy. And Zerubbabel didn't have the royal might of his great granddaddy, David. Another granddad of his was David's son, Solomon. So all those greats minus one. He didn't have the wealth of Solomon, who was incredibly wise and incredibly wealthy, and the one who built the temple to begin with. So Zerubbabel was wondering, how in the world am I going to do this? I can't do it. Well, that's when God spoke to him. And we read about it in Zechariah chapter 4. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Z, uh, not by might, nor by, my, nor by power, but by my spirit. You can't do it. It's not by your might. It's not by your power that this is going to happen but it's by my spirit that it's going to happen. I'm going to do it, says the Lord of hosts. Um, God was the one who would do the heavy lifting for Zerubbabel. And you know, it's the same with us. I think when I read this uh, about, and one of the things on my heart often these days is, is our vision for the year 2030, our enduring reach vision. And our heart, we believe uh, God is given us this vision to, uh, by the year 2030, notice it says the people of Wawasee Bible, not the pastors, the people. That includes the pastors. It's all of us. will engage in 10,000 gospel conversations and establish a local enduring presence in at least two surrounding communities 
meeting practical, emotional, spiritual needs of people in the greater Wawasee Lakes area. You know, we got people already for the last few months who've been studying our community and trying to figure out where could we engage. And many of you for the last number of months have been engaging in gospel conversations and sharing your faith. And by the way, at the, towards another month or so, there's gonna be an app available that we're making uh, to be able to help you track those conversations and pray for the people that you're talking to. And we'll let you know more about that when we get there. But you know, uh, these enduring presences, there's a, there's a benefit for us. Well, actually, let me start on the, the negative side. There's, there's kind of a, a negative side of us being in the cornfields. And that is we're not really part of any community. <laughs> but there's also benefit in that because it means we can reach in to about any community. And so we want to take advantage of that opportunity to establish something enduring that will outlast us, a ministry, a church plant, who knows, in the areas surrounding us. But that's not going to be accomplished by us. I mean, I feel like Zerubbabel when I think about that. God, I can't do that. We can't do that. And he would say, well, it's not by your power or your might. It's by my spirit if that's going to happen. So we need to pray. And trust him and trust God's power to do it and pray often. And, and you know, Zerubbabel's experience, it shows us clearly it wasn't him. It was God. But it also shows us that God delighted to do the work through Zerubbabel and he delights to do the work through us. Look a couple of verses later in Zechariah. The hands of Zerubbabel laid the foundation of this house, the rebuilt temple. His hands shall also complete it then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. See, God's going to do it, but he's going to do it through Zerubbabel. Well, it's the same for us in our vision. It's the same for Paul in Acts chapter 19. It wasn't about Paul, but God worked through Paul and through his faith. And he delights to work through us. Friend, do you know if you're a Christian, if you've trusted Jesus, the very power of God, of his spirit, dwells in you and works through you. That's incredible power. That's not yours, but it's God. Ephesians 3, Paul writes this. He says, now to him, see, notice he gets the glory. God does, Jesus does. Who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or all we could even think. Well, how does he do it? How does he do those things? According to the power at work within us. He does it in us and through us. He delights to. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. You know, that, that passage, when I was a student at Moody Bible Institute uh, about 25 years ago, that was the first sermon I ever preached was from those two verses. And it was awful. It was a, I'm glad it's not on a podcast anywhere. It was a terrible sermon. But it's a reminder to me, uh, always, and always has been, that it's really not up to me. God is the one who does it. Way more than I could ever ask or imagine. And it's his power that, that works through me. And that works through you. And that was working here through Paul. You know, Peter wrote, his divine power has granted to us. It's, it's not just people we think of as like some kind of spiritual giant like Paul. It's all of us that this power has been granted to as we trust Christ. 
And he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And the way we receive them is through knowledge of him, through knowledge of Christ. It's by faith and by knowing Jesus. So look back again here at Acts 19. You know, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. He was doing it through Paul, but God was doing it. So that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin, uh, by the way, uh, implied in this word, if you go back and look at it in the underlying language, is, uh, is a sweat rag. <laughs> this is what Paul wore. He was a leather worker, right? That's what he was doing for the mornings and the evenings. And so it's his, his sweat rags and his dirty aprons that he'd wipe his hands on. Well, somebody decided out, they had faith in hearing the things he was teaching. They said, I want to kind of hold on to that. And they were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them. The evil spirits even came out of them. But it wasn't anything magic about Paul or magic about those garments. It was about the faith of the people in the God Paul proclaimed. And it was God's power working through Paul. Uh, you see, it's God's power, not some magic formula in the ways that he works. The crazy thing is that in this day and age, uh, in Paul's day and age, is, is what I'm implying here, is that there were many who did think it was all about a magic formula of some sort. See, there were uh, vocational exorcists. They, they would go around and they profited off of their supposed ability to manipulate the gods and spirits of their day. In fact, we, we see that happen here in the next verse. Uh, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, they're traveling exorcists, they undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. Evidently, they heard Paul speak. They saw what God was doing through Paul. And they thought, hmm, how do we add that to our mojo and what we're doing? So uh, they said, I assure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And th th it was seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva that were doing this. Uh, this isn't a high priest like in Jerusalem, but just a leading or a chief priest uh, probably in that area. But these guys foolishly failed to see that the power to drive out demons from, was from God's Holy Spirit, not from Paul and not from some incantation or magic formula. See, often uh, people who, who had this vocation, they would recite a list of names in their incantation to be sure of including in their minds the right deity, you know, and they were trying to use Jesus' name to match Paul's power. But there's no magic formula as it relates to the God of heaven. He cannot and will not be manipulated. There's, there's no magic formulas in Christianity, friends. It's not about saying the right things or saying them in the right order or with the right clothes on, in the right posture. That's religion. Religion says if I do this and if I do it in the right way, then, oh man, I hope I do, then maybe God will... Forgive me or be pleased with me. And what that does, ultimately, if you kind of back that out, it treats God like a cosmic consultant or a genie in a bottle. Like if I, if I rub the lamp the right way, he'll make all my wildest dreams come true. But it's not how it works. It's not how it works. And the true God of the Bible cannot be manipulated. 
It's about knowing God. Paul writes this to the Romans. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable are his ways. For who's known the mind of the Lord? Or who's been his counselor? Who, who could manipulate him? And who's given a gift to him that God has to repay us? <laughs> the implied answer is no one because God can't be manipulated. See, it's from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. What we're about to see in Acts 19 here with these sons of Sceva is that they thought they could manipulate God for their own ends, their own selfish ends. You know, if they just had the incantations right, the technique down, if uh, they had the process perfected, you know, they, they thought they could, they could use God for their own purposes and maybe to make a little extra money. But they failed to realize that Christ's power cannot be assessed by reciting his name like a magic charm. <laughs> it, just, it doesn't work that way. God works his power only through those he chooses, only at the times he determines, and he does it by faith in him. You know, beware of thinking that you can control God somehow by clever prayers or following man-made schemes or that you can trick God somehow. God's free to do whatever he likes. That's his sovereignty. But you know, uh, before we see what happens with these guys, this isn't the first time somebody showed up in Acts trying to manipulate God or thinking they could. In fact, if you turn all the way back with me, uh, about halfway back where we've covered, back to Acts chapter 18, or chapter eight, excuse me, verse 18, we're introduced to this guy named Simon, Simon the magician. We talked about him probably about a year ago, maybe a little more. And uh, he witnessed the power of God's spirit at work too, just like these seven sons had. But he saw it not through Paul, but through Peter and some of the other apostles. And he thought, hey, that kind of power, that'd be good for business. So he attempted a buyout. And he goes to them, uh, it says, when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them some money, thinking I could... I'd like some of that. And here's what he said. He said, hey, give me this power too so that anyone on whom I lay my hands might receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter, verse 20, Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. That literally, uh, you might remember when we talked about this, what Peter's saying here is, uh, Simon, you can take your money to hell. May it perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this manner, for your heart is not right before God. Notice it wasn't about him trying to buy God's favor or buy that power or manipulate God. It was about his heart. His heart wasn't right before God. That was the issue. And Simon failed to realize it. He, he failed to realize God's power is not a magic formula. He's not our genie in a bottle. It, it's not a formula. It's about faith in Christ who, who makes our hearts right before God. Not some methodology we follow. 
You know, but if there was any type of magic formula, Peter alludes to it in the next verse. He tells Simon, he says, repent. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. Pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart might be forgiven you. It's not about going through the right motions. It's about repenting and turning back. You know, uh, have you ever been to a little kid's basketball game? And you see him dribbling the ball, and uh, inevitably, in almost every game, uh, probably second, third grade and younger, it seems like uh, somebody gets the ball, and they start going to the wrong basket. You ever see that? And what's everybody yell? Repent! (laughs) But they could. They yell, turn around. That's what repent means. Turn around, man, you're going the wrong way. You're, You're going to the wrong goal. It's that way. That's what repentance is. And Simon didn't realize it, and so Peter's telling him, you need to repent, and God's concerned with your heart not going through the right motions. Well, the problem with the guys, if we fast forward again back to Acts 19, is that they had never repented. They had never turned to and trusted Christ and become part of God's family. See, here's the crazy thing, is that even for those of us who've trusted Christ, who have repented, the enemy likes to whisper in our ear. He likes to say things like, you're not doing it right. That's not enough. You must have made God mad. You better make it up to him. Or just give it all up. He convinces us that God's a taskmaster rather than a loving father. You can't repent. You you gotta figure this out before you think about something like that. Before you could ever go back. He convinces us that God's a taskmaster, not a loving dad. See, when you repent, when you turn to Jesus, you become part of God's family. And you're no longer, you're his kid. You're not like an employee who has to measure up to stay on staff and on the payroll. You're his. And the problem, as I mentioned, with these guys in Acts 19 is they had never repented. They had never become part of God's family, never trusted Christ. See, these seven sons, these seven guys are doing this, and, but the evil spirit, after they, you know, they mentioned Jesus' name, he, he answered them. He's like, um, Jesus I know. Paul I know. He's part of his family. Who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. You get to verse 17. This story became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Because there was power, uh, not in some magic formula or incantation, but in Jesus' name. And by the way, this isn't like, you know, uh, Jesus' name, like the word Jesus, you know, like Mufasa, like, ooh, say it again. 
It's like Jesus' name in the sense of his power, of the God of the universe. That's his name. That's who he is. It's his identity. That's where power was. And, and that kind of goes back again to our vision, right? We, we want to see this happen. But it's not by us. It's by God's power. And our hope is that Jesus will be made known, that, that we'll be known throughout our region as a church that not only preaches but actually lives the truth of this book and of the gospel. That people in our communities would know they're loved by that name. They're loved by Jesus and loved by us. And we'll be known as a church with a passion for meeting the greatest spiritual needs of every person in our circle of influence. See, the people of Ephesus, when this happened, they recognized the power of Jesus' name. And like Paul writes to the church in Philippi, they recognized that God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name above every name, and that he says at the name of Jesus one day, every knee will bow and confess that he's Lord. His name alone has the power to save us. You know, Acts 17, this became known to them. Well, uh, it, it reminds me too even of, of Peter's words back in Acts chapter four. Let it be known to all of you and the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you. Well, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you there's salvation in no one else for no other name under heaven is given by which we must be saved. There's nowhere else to go for salvation and purpose and hope. There's no, friend, there's no magic formula to fix your life. There's only a person who can. There's power in his name. His name is Jesus. It's not a magic formula, but it's Jesus that brings change. Friends, when you turn to Christ, he changes you. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says that those who are in Christ, who've put their faith in Christ, they're made new. The old is gone, the new has come. And when you're new, there's something that happens in your spirit when you find yourself still living with the old. And little by little, as God continues to make you new, like some of you, you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, some of you for not very long. Those of you who have for a long time, you recognize that like not everything just radically changed at once. Like yeah, there were some big changes in my life, but it, it wasn't just suddenly this brand new, like totally fixed person. But over time, God continues to reveal things to me and I continue to change as I follow him and as he reveals more things, I, I repent again and then I repent again and I keep redirecting my focus back to Christ. And the old goes away. Well, when they saw the power of Jesus' name in Ephesus, everyone knew it, his name was extolled. Look at what happens. Many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Now, some of these might have been brand new believers because of this event. Some of them might have already followed Jesus, but there were still some old things hanging around in their life that hadn't yet been dealt with, that they hadn't yet let go of. And so they come confessing and divulging these things. And a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all. 
This is likely the more wealthy among them because Luke goes on and he tells us they counted the value of them and they found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Well, a piece of silver was a, a drachma. It was like a day's wage. So I thought, I wonder how much these books were worth. How much did they just set aside to follow Christ and to repent and turn back to him? I looked up the average wage in Indiana. So the average salary throughout Indiana is about $60,000 a year. works out to $231 a day is average. Which means some of us maybe make more than that. Some of us make less than that. But if you take that average, multiply that times 50,000, you get $11.5 million worth of books and things that they used. And they were willing to leave it all behind for the wealth of knowing Christ. You know, um, it makes me wonder, you know, what would be burned today if God's spirit swept over our hearts? What would be tossed out? What would we say, you know, that used to hold value to me, but compared to knowing Jesus, it, I can't do that anymore. See, when they did this, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily in Ephesus. And as we wrap, it reminds me of kind of, if you've been around the church at all, and even if you haven't, there's two words that you've probably heard a lot of. The first one is this confession. Confession is when I declare to be true what is actually true. Let me say that again, and you can write it down if you want. Confession is when I declare to be true what is actually true. So sometimes we think of confession, declaring to be true what is actually true as it relates to our actions and our sin. That we've turned from God. That, that we've done things that, that we ought not do because of who he's made us to be. That old is gone, the new has come. And, and part of how God's power changes us is when we confess. When we say to be true what we know to actually be true, that, that that's sin, that's, that's I, I can't be doing that. God, I bring that to you. John writes this, if we confess our sins, if we say to be true what is actually true, he, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus' little brother James goes to even say in chapter five of his uh, letter, he says, therefore confess your sins to one another and, and pray for one another so that you can be healed. Say what's true. Say to be true what's actually true. Just admit it. It's good. As Pastor Dave likes to say, it's the way forward. Confession is. The writer of Proverbs says, whoever conceals his transgressions, his sin will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. 
See, confession is when I declare what's true to be true. Sometimes it's a confession of sin, but sometimes it's a confession of faith. That Jesus is God, I'm not. (laughs) See, Paul says this to Romans, say with your mouth, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe it in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Then you'll be saved. With your heart you believe and are made right with God. And with your mouth you say that Jesus is Lord. And so you're saved. Scripture says the one who trusts in him, the one who does this, who confesses, will never be put to shame when you declare to be true what is actually true. You won't be put to shame. Hand in hand with confession, you might even say the opposite side of the same coin is uh, another word, what the Bible calls repentance, which we've already talked about, which simply means to turn, to turn back from that way you're going and turn back to Jesus. It's a, it's a change of mind, literally, that's accompanied with a change of action. It's a change of mind accompanied with a change of action. Paul writes this to young pastor Timothy. He says, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. So let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, which happens through confession and repentance, he'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee useful passions. You're going to the wrong basket. (laughs) Repent. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. I'll give you a little more scripture and then I'll share a story with you as we wrap up. Uh, the psalmist writes, therefore, Lord, this is an act of confession. You might just jot this down, Psalm 119, 128. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. And I hate every false way. You might be like, yeah, but Josh, if I do that, that's a lie because I kind of like some false ways. Well, say it by faith. Say, God, I desire to hate every false way. Help me. Help me. Uh, last night, uh, Rock taught us from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. It's accompanied with action. Turning back. Whereas worldly grief just produces death. The psalmist says in Psalm 130, with with you, Lord, there's forgiveness so that you may be feared. Sometimes we we fear God and we're afraid of him because we think, oh, there's, there's punishment and retribution. But actually, he can be feared and revered because there's forgiveness. And he loves us as we turn back to him. See, it's, it's God's power, not a magic formula that brings change, and that's harnessed through confession and repentance. Let me introduce you as we close to this man. His name is uh, Sir Edwin Lancier. He kind of looks like he's really not wanting his picture taken, doesn't he? 
Like somebody pulled out their cell phone and, ah, gotcha, Edwin. Well, he was one of the most famous painters in the Victorian era. You know, his talent even developed at a really young age. Uh, He had his first showing of his artwork at the Royal Academy when he was only 13 years old. He was commissioned to do a number of official portraits of the royal family. In fact, he even gave drawing lessons to Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. But you know, he was best known for his depiction of natural settings and life in the Scottish Highlands. Uh, One day he was visiting a family in a small uh, Scottish village in this old mansion, and one of the servants spilled a pitcher of something that it, it splashed up against the wall, this beautiful ornate wall, and it created this awful stain on the wall. Uh, well, while the family was out for the day, Lancer, who was staying there, he, uh, he stayed behind, and using charcoal, he incorporated that stain into a beautiful drawing. When the family returned, instead of finding the stain that was there, they found a picture of a waterfall surrounded by trees and beautiful animals. Edwin used his skill to make something beautiful out of what had been an unsightly mess. Do you know, friends, as as we confess, as we declare to be true what's actually true, and as we repent, as we turn back to Jesus. God works very much in the same way in our lives. The things that we think of as weaknesses and handicaps, by his grace, become our greatest strengths. And they get woven into the tapestry of the story of the great things he's doing in our lives. Not anything we've done. And it brings glory to himself. Amen. Let me pray.